Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. We've looked at uh, Gideon now for a couple weeks. Last week we were looking at the uh, cultivation of Gideon. Tonight we're looking at the challenge of Gideon. And we see that in chapter 6, verses 33 through uh, 40. As I said before, Gideon (coughs) is in this process of training. And he's being trained by God to be the next deliverer of Israel, and he's one of the most unlikely candidates. And as part of his training, God commanded Gideon to destroy an altar. We looked at this last week to the pagan god Baal and to build an altar to Jehovah in its place, which is a pretty bold thing to do, being that he lived his pagan, his family was pagan, the community he lived in was pagan, so to do that would be a pretty bold statement. And Gideon basically uh, passed the test with flying colors. And the people in his village were not pleased with him, however. Um, They actually wanted to kill him as a result of this action that he had done. And so we saw where Gideon's father stepped in and defended his son's actions. And it would appear that Gideon's father at some point um, was challenged by his own son's courage and conviction and was really convicted over his own compromise in this area, apparently. And so after that very public test uh, came a, what we call private testing. And the second test was not instigated by God, but it's instigated by Gideon. And so he, he demonstrated great bravery in the public test, but here uh, tonight we'll see he shows a clear uh, lack of faith in time of his private testing. Uh, someone once said, you are in the, the, the person you are in private is the person you really are, right? We've heard that. And there is some truth to that statement. And sometimes it's easier to put on a, a public face and appear to be one person when um, you're literally someone totally different in private. And there have been times when, you know, We've probably all seen that in our lives to some degree. And so in this passage, we're going to look at, at Gideon's, not just his public life, but his private, his, his true life um, as well. And so when Gideon destroyed, remember, he destroyed this altar to Baal. That was a step of great faith for this man. Uh, this was something that he wasn't just given to do on his own. It was something God had instructed him to do. And even though Gideon did it at night under the uh, darkness because he feared his family members, which obviously I would too if they wanted to kill you. And so he did what the Lord told him to do in the end. In this passage, removed from the public eye, we see that Gideon apparently um, is still afraid and he's still a bit unsure of God's calling on his life and and God's uh, faithfulness to him. And so... Apparently his family and those who lived in the village where he, he lived witnessed this, uh, this prior courageous act in public. And uh, God will witness his fear in private. And so today we look at this. We'll see the courageous public person of Gideon. And then we'll see the fearful private person as well. And we want to, we'll see him challenge the people uh, to follow him into this battle. 
And this battle was not just a little war. It wasn't just, it was overwhelming odds that he was going up against. It was something that was just clearly impossible. It would have been, I mean, we would call it a suicide mission kind of a thing. Um, but before we're finished, we're going to see, I think, a little bit of us in Gideon. And uh, he'll, he'll, we'll see that. And we'll watch as Gideon wavers between faith and fear. And that's kind of the, the Christian life, right? I mean, we're always wavering between faith and fear at some degree. So we want to look at some observations here. And, and if you look at, at beginning there in verse 33, and we're just going to read the text as we go through it. In verse 33, it says, uh, Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abizrites were called out uh, to follow him. And so as the scene opens, you have young Gideon energized. You see his faith, clearly, uh, from his recent victory. And he's calling Israel to prepare for war. For war. And, and this is the Gideon the Lord saw when he first commissioned Gideon for the task of delivering God's people all the way back in verse 12. And so the, let's, let's consider this, this Gideon for a moment. In verse 33, we see Gideon's enemies. You know what these Midianites and Amalekites would do. They would prey upon uh, Israel. They would wait for them to do the harvesting and do all that, and then they would come in and they'd steal all the crops, and Israel didn't have any weapons, they didn't have anything, so they couldn't really defend themselves, so they just went up in the hills and ran away and let the people do what they do, and then when they leave, they'd go back and start all over. And they did this for seven years, it says. They had their own private little Israeli pantry that they were raiding. Um, and so they would come in and they would take the harvest for themselves and leaving the people of Israel destitute and broken. We saw that in verses 3 to 4. And, and this was what take, was taking place for seven years. And they were significant in numbers. They, they, when they came in, they just didn't send one or two people. They were overwhelming. Um, Judges, Judges chapter 7 verse 12 gives us some idea of the size of this vast army. Uh, in Judges 8, 8 verse 10, chapter 8 verse 10, their army numbered around 135,000 men. So this wasn't a small little band of marauders. You know, this was a vast army. And uh, we're told that the, the enemies of Israel here made their camp in the valley, it says, of Jezreel. The valley of Jezreel. Now this valley was the largest, the most fertile valley in all of Israel. So they were kind of like coming in and putting their stamp on on their most fertile ground. And many of the crops that sustained Israel uh, were grown there. They were produced there. And having the enemy invade every, every you know, now and then for seven years and take everything that they harvested uh, would be a serious blow to the, the uh, food chain and supplies for the nation. And the, the, the Valley of Jezreel is also known as the, the Valley of Megiddo. And there's a lot of great battles that have been fought on that piece of ground. It is where the final battle will be waged. It's here on this same battleground that the Lord Jesus Christ will defeat 
the Antichrist in the end and his armies, his armies at the end of the tribulation period. So it's, it's a very notable valley that they were coming down and, and, and engaging in. And in, in verse 34 here we see Gideon's engagement. When the enemy comes, um, Gideon has the courage to do what no man has done for seven years. Every time the, these, these enemies would come in, what would they do? They would run up into the hills because they had nothing to defend themselves. And from that period of time, the war trumpets of Israel had been silent. And that's what signified an invading party. You would, you would have trumpeters placed up on the wall or wherever around the city. And if you saw enemies coming, you would sound the trumpet. That would prepare the army for battle. The problem was they didn't have an army. They didn't have any to defend themselves. So they, they just laid their trumpets down and they thought, oh, here they come again, let's get out of here. And they would just run and hide. That was what they would do. No one in the land had possessed the courage to pick up this trumpet and call the people to war. In other words, we're going to take our stand here. And Gideon appears ready and able for the task that he has been assigned. Uh, he places in his hand the trumpet. He licks his lips and he calls Israel together for battle. So he engages there in verse verse 4. And you wonder, well, where does he get this? Where does uh, Gideon's energy come from? What kind, where does he get this kind of courage? Well, we're told earlier that, what, the Spirit of the Lord, remember, came upon Gideon? So God took uh, control of Gideon, really, and caused him to sound the war call. I don't think this is something probably he would have done just on his own. I don't know if you've ever had that opportunity, but in life where you're faced with a situation, and if you were just in your own mind and you thought through, you would probably say, I would not do that again. <laughs> that was kind of silly. But for whatever reason, you did, and God got you through it, and you thought, that, that was pretty neat how, how the Lord protected me in that situation. So God took control of Gideon and caused him to, to sound this, this war call. And um, this man blowing the trumpet, calling Israel to war, is not the same man we, we met back in verses 11 to 24. It's a totally different man. This man would not have done that back, back then. Uh, that man, remember, he was defeated Right? He was hiding, he was, he was uh, making wheat so that he couldn't be seen. He was disillusioned, he was discouraged, he was filled with doubt, all these things. Uh, Gideon at that point in time was very um, different than the man we're meeting tonight. Here we see somebody who's de decisive, he's daring, he's bold, he's defiant, and he's determined. And he's like, you know what, I have a task to do, God has given me this, and I'm going to do it. And something has happened. Something has happened. And that something is the power of the Spirit of God. And, uh, you know, we've all probably experienced that at some point in our Christian lives. Maybe when we're out evangelizing, we're witnessing to somebody, and, and they begin to ask us questions, which is always kind of freaky, right? You don't know what questions are going to ask you. You're going to have the answers. And you look back on that situation, you say, you know what? the Lord just kind of brought certain things to my mind and, and it seemed to meet their, their question. And it was, it was really incredible how 
God supplied what I needed during that time. <clears throat> and that's the Spirit of God at work in our lives. And so Gideon had a personal encounter with God in verses 11 to 24, and he made a de- decisive commitment to obey the Lord in verses 25 to 32. And now he comes under the control of the, the Spirit of God. And when those things take place in a person's life, guess what? They're not going to be the same. That's why when you run into people years after your conversion that maybe they didn't know you after your conversion, they only knew you before your conversion. And they talk to you for a couple of minutes and they're like, man, what happened to you? Right? I mean, they're just, they're blown away at the change in your life in so many different facets of it. Well, it's the Spirit of God working. When those things take place in a person's life, they will not be the same person. Gideon met God and his life changed. And that principle holds true to, for us today. You know, when someone tells me, oh, yeah, you know, I got saved, but their life depicts the same life <laughs> that it did before they were saved. With all the issues, y- you got to wonder. You know, I used to tell young people all the time, no, no Jesus, no change, no change, no Jesus. I don't care if you went to youth camp and raised your hand and walked the aisle and threw a piece of wood in the fire, whatever you, whatever you did, uh, you're clearly, there's no difference. You know, after the little mountain high spiritual experience is gone, you're right back to the same antics that were displeasing to the Lord before. You're doing the same things now. And yet you're saying you had this conversion. So you have to stop and you have to say, wait a minute, has God changed my life? If you want to serve the Lord in power, that power comes only through the work of the Holy Spirit. It can't come from you. It never comes from us. Now, the Holy Spirit lives in us, right? The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is uh, in our bodies. Look over at uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We saw this before. But Paul writes, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And he, he's, he, he goes on here, and he earlier in, verse, in chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, he says, do you not know that you are what? God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So as believers, none of those things listed there by Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 6 should be part of our lives. Why? Because in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, he says, the Holy Spirit has invaded your life. He's indwelt your body. He dwells within you. You are his temple. Uh, or in Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, verse uh, 19 to 22. He says, So you are no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Then it says, In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And why is that? Because in verse 22 it says, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we're to yield control of our lives to 
the Spirit of, 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 of Christ, the Holy Spirit. That's why in Ephesians 5.18, it says, don't get drunk with wine, don't let alcohol, don't let drugs, don't let things from outside the body control you. That's wrong, that's debauchery. But it says, be filled, be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And so that, that verb there, filled, is, is in the continuous present tense. It goes on and on and on. It's something you, you don't just do once. It's not like you become a Christian and you're filled with the Spirit, you're controlled by the Spirit, and then you just never have to do that again. No. That's not the way it works. You're continually filled by the Spirit. You're baptized by the Spirit once. Right? You're baptized by the Spirit of God into the body of Christ, the Bible says. That's different than the filling. The filling is something that's ongoing. The filling is something that is moment by moment. You know, I can be filled with the Spirit as I'm sitting up here talking to you and on the way home, somebody pull out in front of me and I could be unfilled with the Spirit real quick. <laughs> right? Get upset at somebody else, a driver, whatever. Who knows what? Anger fills your heart, your mind, whatever. Um, you know, so that's, that's why the Bible says, man, when you, when you sin as a Christian, the best thing to do is just confess that sin. Just admit to it. Own it. And move on. We're not to linger there. If we confess our sins, since we confess our sins, really, he is able to forgive and, and you know, he, he does all that for us. And so we should be eager to do that, knowing that when sin has filled our heart, guess what? The Holy Spirit isn't controlling us. What's controlling us? The flesh, right? The sin, sinful flesh. And that's to mention the, the mortification of, of sin, that book by John Owen. That's what he talks about. You have to be constantly mortifying sin in your body, constantly fighting against it. It's constantly there. It never goes away. You never arrive at a plateau in your spiritual life where you say, oh, now I can just relax. I don't have to worry about sin in my life. I've been a Christian for 40 years, and, you know, I'm fine. I can just coast. No, you can't. That's probably one of the most frustrating things about the Christian life, is you never arrive until you finally arrive. But here, while you're here on this earth, and you're in this body, and you're in this world that's filled with sin you're just one decision away from going down a bad path you're just one decision away from making a decision that would be dishonoring to the lord destroying your rest your your, your reputation harming your family harming your marriage harming whatever i mean it's just one decision away and the, the minute you be, begin to believe no 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 that's wrong i i don't have to i'm, I'm not worried about that that's when satan has you where he wants you that's when he will strike. So we have to continually be filled with the Spirit. And while the Spirit of God will empower us for service, he does that. Um, I mean, he operates a little bit different in the New Testament, I believe, than he does in the Old Testament. Some people say, well, did the Old Testament saints have the Holy Spirit? Of course they did. They had to. You can't be saved without the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, that's the one that convicts us of sin. So they had the Holy Spirit. It was just a little, I would say, a little different for us today. Um, in the Old Testament, we see the Holy Spirit 
coming upon people for special tasks. We see that in the New Testament too, by the way. So it's not just in the Old Testament. Um, some people believe because David said, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Somehow in the Old Testament, it's once they had the Holy Spirit, God could take it away. Um, to me, that would be akin to losing your salvation. <laughs> I, I don't believe that. So uh, there, there's been theological arguments along that, that path. Um, it operated differently in the Old Testament, de- definitely, than the New Testament. But I think that we, we have to realize that the Holy Spirit is the same Holy Spirit, and he still um, indwells us today, maybe in a little different um, practical sense. But um, we still have to be dependent upon him. Uh, the Bible says every believer is indwelt with the Spirit of God. In, in Romans 8, 9, it says, Paul writes, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, he says, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Well, what do you mean, Paul? He goes on, he says, anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So, having the Spirit... When you become a Christian, when you commit your life to Christ, when you turn from your sin and you turn to the Savior and you say, Lord, you know, save me. And he does. He, that's one of the things that happens immediately. The Holy Spirit indwells you. And you have access to a power that you never had access to before to live this Christian life. And so when that happens, that's important to to. We still are in this body. We still have our own will, right? We can still decide not to listen to the Holy Spirit. We can still decide, the Bible says, to grieve the Holy Spirit of God, to do something that he doesn't want us to do. I always look at it as kind of a, you know, when you're driving in a car. And uh, some people have real issues with other people driving them while they're in the car. They want to be in control of the vehicle. They don't like to go for a ride with somebody and not drive the car. Um, I'm that way. I, don't, I like to be in control of things. So if we go somewhere, you know, and you drive, I mean, I'm fine with it, but I feel much more comfortable behind the wheel. You may not feel as comfortable <laughs> with me driving you, but I feel just fine. So, and that's an important thing to understand. Uh, and, I, and I remember thinking, when I first became a Christian, when someone was telling me I needed to be filled, I need to yield control to the Holy Spirit each and every day, they, they gave me a picture. They said, picture yourself. God's got you. You know, you, you're, you're in, the, in the driving seat of your own life. God saves you, and the Holy Spirit enters the car. And at first, because, boy, this is all fresh and new, hey, man, I'll do whatever you want to do. God, sure, you know. And you're sitting in the the passenger seat. Man, you may be even sitting in the back seat, and God's Spirit is driving the car, and you're good with it. But then God's Spirit maybe takes you someplace you don't want to go, and what do you do? You reach up, and you (laughs) pull the Holy Spirit out of the driver's seat, and you say, hey, I'm taking over, pal, you know. And the Spirit of God is saying, hey, you know, let me control this. I know what's going on. I know much better than you. You know, I know that in your logic, this doesn't look good, but it all folds into the purpose of God. Let me drive the car, and you're, no, nope, nope, I'm going to be in control. And usually you end up getting in a wreck. 
And then after the wreck, what happens? That God take control. And it's just this cycle, just like we see in Israel. It's the same cycle, you know. And that continues until we come to see the Lord face to face. Hopefully in a, in a decreasing fashion as we mature in Christ, but it still continues. And so he gives us help each day to live this life that he calls us to do. And if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you, you're not a Christian. You can't be a Christian without the Spirit of Christ. That's why in some of the Charismatics movements, they say, well, you become a Christian, and then you have to pray for the Holy Spirit. They add that on to your salvation. Um, and then you'll know when you got the Holy Spirit when you speak in what? When you speak in tongues. That's, that's not biblical at all. That's, that's heresy, basically. God doesn't teach that. Uh, in Romans 8, 14, it says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So you want, you know, when, when Christians come and they say, Boy, I just, you know, I'm really at odds with my Christian faith. I, I don't have the security in Christ. I don't really feel like I'm a Christian. A lot of times, it's, it's are they being led by the Spirit of God? Or are they being led by their own moral judgment or their own fleshly desires or whatever. It may be, they may be even be good, but that doesn't mean that that's a good thing because it says you have to be led by the Spirit of God and then you'll be confirmed that you are a son of God um, because the Holy Spirit never departs from someone who's come to Christ. You know, we don't lose the Holy Spirit. He takes up permanent residence in our hearts and john 14 16 to 17 jesus says this and i will ask the father and he will give you another helper he was telling his disciples look i'm going to punch you out of here pretty soon i'm going to go die on a cross i'm going to be gone you're going to not be on your own but the father is providing another helper that helper one who comes alongside is that holy spirit and he says to be with you forever in verse 17 or 16. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him. Why? Because you're a follower of Christ. For he dwells with you and will be in you. All right. His presence guarantees our eternal security in Christ. So it's, it's, it's an important thing to, 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 to reveal to us that, you know what, there's a permanence to our salvation. You know, we don't want to look at it as, oh, what you mean once saved, always saved. I mean, that, that kind of makes sense, right? But when you say that, it almost gives you a license for sin. <laughs> you know, a better way to, to say it would say someone who comes to Christ will persevere in their faith. Because you don't just, you know, add Jesus to your life and continue to do whatever you want. That's not a true believer. Uh, that's someone who's, you know, falsely converted, frankly. And it ends in frustration because they don't have the Spirit of God and they're trying to do everything that all these Christians are telling them to do and they can't do it and they get irritated and finally they just give up. But as believers, we have the Spirit of God. He dwells in you. He will never leave us. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 says, In him you also, um, 
when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, it says we're sealed with what? With the promised Holy Spirit. So what role does the Holy Spirit play in all this? In verse 14 of Ephesians 1, it tells us, it tells us that he is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. We don't have possession of our, our, of our inheritance, of our eternal inheritance yet, do we? So what guarantee do we have in all this? Well, God has given us a deposited uh, guarantee within us, the Holy Spirit. And it says that's, that's a guarantee that one day you will actually acquire your eternal uh, glory. And when the Spirit of, con- the Spirit of God is in control of our lives, uh, initially we're changed inwardly. All right, our convictions change, our thinking changes, a lot of things change. A lot of you remember when you first became a Christian, things began to change in your life. And the inward change manifests itself outwardly through what? Through godly living, good works. That's what um, Galatians chapter 5, Paul says all that, right? But I say walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the, the desires of the flesh. Because they're opposed to each other. The flesh and the, the, uh, the, the Spirit are opposed to each other. But if you live by the Spirit, he says you'll walk in step with the Spirit. That's why he says also, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone be in Christ, he's what? He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Well, what is causing all this newness? It's the Holy Spirit. Okay. Or Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in, in them. And then James chapter 2, verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. See, that's, that's key to understanding what this salvation produces. Uh, you're not saved by the works that you produce as a Christian. God's not at home, um, you know, somehow tabulating how many works you're doing and then saying, okay, well, now you've reached this benchmark, so now you're saved. That's not how it works. But once you're in Christ, the Bible says that God has prepared good works for you to do as a believer so that you can be a testimony for Christ, that you can attest to the goodness, the grace, the love of God. You can be a blessing to others as you fulfill the works that he's provided for you to do. So that's Gideon and his faith. Secondly, in verse 34, at the end there, we see Gideon and his following. It says in verse, uh, back to Judges, Judges uh, 34 It says, but the, the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abizarites were called out to follow him. And so when Gideon sounds this, this trumpet, this war trumpet, the people actually begin to rally around him, around Gideon. They responded to the call. We're told here that these these Abizarites, or however you say it, came to stand with Gideon. And this is a reference to Gideon's own people, his own clan of people, his own tribe, you might say. 
And these are the very same people that back in verse 30 wanted to kill him. <laughs> so somehow they had a change in their attitude toward Gideon. Evidently his family and those who lived around him adopted his reforms to some degree. They're, they're changed people. Instead of wanting him dead, now it says they're ready to follow uh, him and his, his leadership. I mean, you never know how a step of obedience in the right direction will affect other people. What will it accomplish in their lives, in the lives who see you at work, in the lives who live in your family, in the lives who are your neighbors, whatever. When you live in obedience to Christ, it affects people around you as well. I mean, you, you cannot live for God without positively impacting those immediately around you. And when you really demonstrate a bold commitment like Gideon has here to follow God and his direction in your life, you know what? It encourages other people. It challenges other people. And pretty soon they're going, whoa, this, if Gideon can do this, we can do this. Let's get together and do this. And that's exactly what happened. So we, we should never underestimate how God can use our lives to touch others for his glory. You know, Gideon wasn't, you know, at the center of the thing here going, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm the great one. No, he was, he was <laughs> pointing to the Lord the whole time. And we see that even in the life of Christ. In Matthew 15, 31, it says, so, the crowd, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, what did they do? The next part of that verse says, they glorified the God of Israel. That's always who receives the glory. We're never to receive the glory. Um, and even your enemies will have to acknowledge that God is with you. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that these guys are the same uneducated, common men, <laughs> it uses to describe them. And they were astonished. The people were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I mean, isn't that an incredible verse to think that here are these uneducated, common men, and yet the crowd saw their boldness, and they, they realized something happened to these guys. You know what? He's hanging around Jesus. That's a good thing. You want people to say that of you. You know, wow, they're hanging with Jesus. They're, you know, it's almost an insult nowadays you know what are you one of those jesus freaks yeah yeah i am no apologies um and that's that's our attitude that's that's how we should look at that we ought to thank god for the people around us who possess that kind of a bold bold faith and god is still using that kind of individual to change the world even today for his glory we should pray that god would make us all that way and then in verse 35, we see a committed, a committed following here. In verse 35, it says, And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, and Zebulun, Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. So, Gibeon calls all the other tribes living around them to come to this battle. 
And several, several of these tribes responded to Gideon's call. Uh, Judges chapter 7, verse 3, tells us that Gideon now has an army of 32,000 men. Remember, who started it? One. One guy started this. And now they have 32,000 in their army. Now, it still seems overwhelming odds when you're going up against an army of 135,000, right? That's, that's kind of tough odds to beat. Um, but God doesn't even need that many, we're going to find out, right, to defeat the enemies of his people. In other words, at 32,000, God's going, you know, Gideon, you got too many people there. It's not good. And, and before the dust settles and the enemy is defeated, God will use just 300 men <laughs> to rout this vast army of the Midianites. In other words, God does something that's so spectacular, so supernatural, so incredible, that there's no way anybody could take any credit for it. And that's what God wants to do in our lives, in the lives of those around us. We are living in a time when it appears that the enemies of God um, are increasing in number. And it almost feels like we are um, outnumbered, and we probably are. (laughs) And it seems overwhelming. I mean, you read of some of the stuff that even our own government is doing right now. It's, in, it's, it's nuts. It is crazy. And you wonder, is there any hope? There's always hope. There's always hope when God's involved in something. Uh, there's hope of Christ's return. <laughs> if that doesn't happen, there's hope that, that Christ will give us the grace to get through whatever we have to face. There's hope that God could turn this around. You don't know. Uh, Satan has far more servants at his disposal than the Lord does. I never really thought about that, but that's true. Uh, but you know what? That shouldn't concern us. Really, that's irrelevant. We, we simply need to remember that when God's spirit is in control of God's people, he enables them to accomplish amazing, amazing victories. And uh, if you... Just turn ahead a couple chapters in Judges. Um, Judges 15. Judges 15, or Samson here. It says in verse uh, 14. Then he came to Lehi, and the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became his flax that has caught fire. In other words, very weak. And his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it. And with it he struck a thousand men. I mean, that is amazing. Okay, that is an amazing accomplishment. Uh, You know, we don't have to fear the power of our enemies or the enemies of God, for that matter. We have to rather rest in the power of our great God. See, whenever you get your focus just on the power of the enemy, you could be overwhelmed. 
But don't forget about the power of our great God. It's kind of like when you get your focus on your circumstances, right? And you, and you, you begin overwhelmed. You begin to panic. You, oh, I don't know how this is going to work out. And, you know, head games and everything. And pretty soon you're, you're in an all-out panic. And then God taps you on the shoulder and says, do you think I'm not able to handle this? You don't think I'll give you the grace to get through this? To work something out? Um, we have to trust in the power of our great God. I mean, he's proven his power over and over and over, right? Um, through, the, through Daniel, the widow of Zarephath, stealing, uh, stealing the storms, multiplying loaves and fish, walking on water, I mean, on and on, rising from the dead. I mean, you can go through the New Testament and see the Lord's power over and over and over again. And with, with that kind of a God leading us and living in us, He lives within us. <laughs> We're able to do everything He calls us to do. God's not going to call you to do something and then let you dangle out there. He's already given you the power to do it. We just have to rely on Him. We have to have the attitude of, of Caleb and Joshua. You remember what, what Caleb and uh, 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 Joshua, they, were, they had no fear. They went into the land, they looked at it and said, hey, the Lord, the Lord will give us this. Um, yeah, these, these people are pretty big, but uh, they're not going to fear the enemies that we faced. And we shouldn't, face, we shouldn't fear them either. We need to rest in the power of the Lord Almighty. Think of Mary in the New Testament, right? I mean, incredible situation she's put in. In verse 38, it says, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Right? And the angel departed from her. Didn't even flinch. Just like, yep, okay. Why? Because she had a proper perspective of who God was. Or Job chapter 42, verse 2. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That God's purpose will be carried out. When you, when you begin to live your life that way, it doesn't matter what happens. Because if you're, doing, if you're living in a way that's honoring to the Lord and, and, and you're seeking to serve Him, even though the situation may not turn out the way you think it should, You've got to fall back on the idea that, wait, God has a purpose in this. There's a purpose in this. And his purpose can't be thwarted. Uh, or Jeremiah 32. Um, we sing this song, uh, verse 17. It says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you, the ESV says. Verse 27, the same chapter, Jeremiah 32. Behold, I am the Lord... The God of all flesh is anything too hard for me? Um, we need to stop and remind ourselves of the God that we serve and the God that saved us and the God that lives within us. It brings us to the New Testament, Ephesians 3.20, right? We looked at this a couple Sundays ago. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all you can ask or think according to what? The power that is at work in us. The power that resides within us. So this was Gideon's faith. It was Gideon's following. And then we see here in verse 36, uh, this fleece. And now he's displayed great courage. 
Would you agree? He called these people out to this incredible war. They were overwhelmingly uh, underdogs. They gathered together this army. This was the, the public Gideon. Now Gideon's in private. It's just him and God. Uh, he's still filled with doubts concerning what God is calling him to do. And you're going to see the doubts here in display. Look at verse 36. Then Gideon said to God. Now, what has God promised to do? Gideon, go to war with these people. Don't worry about it. I got it. He's already promised him victory. Verse 36. Hey, hey God, come here. <laughs> you can kind of picture this in your mind. If you will save Israel by my hand. And God's probably saying, what do you mean if? <laughs> right? I already said I'm going to do it. Why, why, do you, why would you put that word if in there? God had already told Gideon in verse 12 of chapter 6. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. In verse 14, he says, And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And even down in verse 16, And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. So God has told him three times now, this is what his plan was. This is what he's going to do through him. And then he has the audacity in verse 36 to say, well, now, if you're going to do this, God. He's not content, as many of us are, not as well, to simply trust the Lord and take him at his word. He, he just can't do that. He wants, kind of, he wants some proof. He's asking God for some kind of deposit, some tangible proof that he can see with his own eyes that this is God's will that he do this. Because like I said, it's not a, this is like a suicide mission. So I, I get his concern. But he's not willing to walk by faith here. He wants to walk by sight as well. And that's part of the problem. That's where his doubt creeps in. But look at verse 37. Behold, I am laying a fleece on the wool of the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. So what does he do? He takes his doubt and he says, you know what, God, I'm going to demand something from you before I do anything. He's second guessing, right? He's, and, and we've all done that in life. He comes up with this test in his own logic, to determine God's will. So he places this sheepskin on the ground. He asks the Lord to make the fleece wet and the ground around it to be dry. It'd be like taking a, a towel and laying it out on your front lawn and saying, okay, God, if you want me to do this in the morning, let the, uh, <laughs> let the, 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 the towel be wet and the ground be dry. That would be a little weird if that actually happened. Well, it says in verse 38, and it was so. <laughs> and so he rose up the next morning and squeezed the fleece, and he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. So apparently, God did 
carried out what what he wanted. God does exactly what Gideon asked him to do. Now here's where he gets in trouble. Um, it doesn't satisfy. Right? He's, he's putting God to the test. And he knows that a piece of sheep, screen, sheep skin is kind of like a a sponge, it will soak up all the available moisture in the air around it. So even though he was able to wring out enough for a whole bowl of water out of this fleece, he's still thinking, "Eh, I'm not convinced. This could have just been a coincidence. So the next night, he asked God to reverse the conditions. Verse 39 there. Um, He says, let not your anger burn, burn against me. So he understands that he's treading here on on hollow ground he's you know putting god to the test that's not a very good place to be in he says let not your anger burn against me let me speak just once more just just one more one more thing here god i just want to make double double sure please let me test just once more with the fleece but this time please let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground, let there be dew. So, this doesn't, initial test doesn't satisfy him, and uh, God does it. Verse 14, God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Now, apparently, at this point, Gideon's satisfied. He doesn't call God to task again. He doesn't question God's will again. Um, now, we look at this and we go, he, he, he could have just taken God's, God at his word from the beginning, right? And cut out the whole fleece thing. And he would have arrived at the same place two, two days earlier, basically. So he's kind of wasting time here. He wasted two precious days playing this game with the fleece with the Lord because he had a lack of faith that caused him to kind of question whether this was really God's will or not. And so I've heard Christians use this in a positive vein. Well, I'm going to put a fleece out. <laughs> you know, that's, that's not a good thing. People look at this as something good. This is not something good. Um, maybe you've done that. Maybe you said, well, God, if you want me to get this job, then you know, whatever. <laughs> Let this happen this way. You put the, the test down, to thrown the gauntlet down to, to prove that the Lord's will is such and such. And you've dictated your terms to Him and you expect Him to do exactly what you told Him to do. I mean, that's really the mentality here. This is not something, I believe, personally, that pleases the Lord. Using a fleece. And I'll show you a couple problems with it. And we'll use Gideon as our example. First of all, Gideon faced the same problem that we all face in life. He lacked the faith to take God at his word. He just didn't have the faith there. God told Gideon that he wanted him to do such and such in verses 12, 14, and 16. But Gideon wasn't willing to simply trust the Lord by faith. He expects, God expects his people to walk with him in humble faith in his word and his promises. That will get you 
a long way with God. When you're able to just accept by faith whatever, whatever God's saying. In Romans 1.17, for, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by what? By sight? No, by faith. So when you see a tangible sign to, to determine God's will, when you seek a tangible time, sign, instead of asking God and just, or trusting God and taking him at his word, you, you want something tangible. God, if, if, if you want me to do this, then let this happen. That displeases the Lord. Uh, another New Testament verse would be Hebrews eleven six, Because it says, without faith, it's what? impossible impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to god must believe that he exists and that he rewards rewards those who seek him hebrews 11:6 or in uh, romans 14:23 this can actually cause us to fall into sin the bible says but whoever has doubts romans 14:23 is condemned if he eats. He's talking about eating food, but still, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is what? Is sin. So anything that's not of faith in our life is sin. Um, We can trust his word because he's promised to lead us. Uh, Psalm 32.8 says, I will instruct you, I will teach you in the way you should go, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. God is in control of this. He's, he's watching over us. Or Psalm 37, 23, and 24, the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. So it doesn't say that you're not going to have maybe a tough time of it, but God is going to be right there to help you. And so his first problem was he lacked faith um, in God and in his word. Another problem here with Gideon's fleece is that Gideon is dictating to God what he's going to do. I mean, who are we to tell God what to do? Uh, Gideon's responsible was, responsibility was just the opposite. His responsibility was not to tell the Lord how things would be. His responsibility was to simply obey the will of God for his life. And our duty is the same. Uh, We're not called to tell the Lord how he should answer our prayers. That's not our call. That's way above our pay grade. We're commanded to obey his word and his will for our lives, and we're commanded to do so without question. Without question. Gideon also learned that seeking a sign does not solve the problem. It doesn't solve the problem. Uh, He got a wet fleece the first time, but he wasn't sure it was the Lord's work. I mean, did God cause the fleece to be wet, or did the fleece simply draw moisture out of the air, was his question. Maybe it just was a coincidence. Gideon was no better off after the first fleece than he was before. He still had the same problem. He still was lacking that trust, that faith in the promises of the Lord. You see, when we, when we set our fleece before the Lord, when we throw a fleece out before the Lord, and we set the conditions, we're setting ourselves up for not faith, but for doubt. 
I mean, think of it this way. If you're trying to find God's will in a matter, so maybe you pray something like this. Lord, if this is your will, let so-and-so call me by 7 a.m. So what if so-and-so calls you by at 7.01? Or what if he calls you at 6.59? All right, you're leaving yourself up. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Or you could say, well, maybe Satan's trying to trick us. Maybe, maybe Satan's trying to cause us doubt. Um, Maybe your clock was just a minute faster, a minute slow. Who knows? You know, you, you got all kinds of problems when you start to lay this fleece out. I heard somebody one day was going shopping for cars, and they got kind of frustrated, and, and they prayed the Lord, and they said, you know, Lord, the next car, if I see it and I like it, then I'll know that <laughs> that's your answer, that I should trade this car in for that one. And it didn't work out. <laughs> okay? Um, even when things go almost like we asked for them to go, you're still prone to doubt. You can still question. You can say, wow, did that really work out that way? If you just take God at his word, you're not going to need the fleece. You don't even have to involve the the fleece in the conversation. And Gideon learned that truth, and so have many of you. There's no peace in the fleece. (laughs) It doesn't bring peace into our life. It leads to doubt. And I think the real problem with putting out a fleece is that a fleece is always placed out of doubt, not faith. You're doubting what God is telling you, so you're, you're questioning God. That's not a biblical method for determining the will of God, and yet people do it all the time. It's a method used by people like Gideon who lack the faith to believe and trust God at the face value of his word. So the question is, how does God guide his people? If it's not by a fleece, how does this happen? Um, well, he tells us in John 16:13 God guides us through his spirit. It says when the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority but whatever he hears he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So Jesus seemed to indicate that the spirit of God is given to us to be a guide. God guides us through his word. That's why we study it. That's why we hide it in our our hearts. Psalm 119 verse 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. It doesn't light up the whole acre. It just does maybe one foot in front of the other. See, and that's why we have a problem with it. Because we want to see the whole picture. And God says, you couldn't handle the whole picture. I'm just going to show you a couple steps here. And just do those faithfully. And then I'll show you the next steps. And, you know, the plan is to keep us dependent on God, not to make us independent of God. Or Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. We see where God guides us through his peace. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. When you're following God and you're following his word and you're putting your trust 
in the Almighty God, there, there's a certain peace that rules your heart. You're not prone to panic. You're not prone to just freak out over every little thing. God guides us also through the desires He gives us. Psalm 34, verse 3, O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. Verse 4 says, I sought the Lord and He answered me and He delivered me from all my fears. So here the psalmist's desire was to be delivered and he was. You know, some people say, well, I don't know what God's will is. You know, God very clearly points out some basic things that we can do that are his will. We can read his word, right? We can, we can walk in the spirit. We can pray. We can fellowship. We can, we can do all these things. And if you're doing what the basic things that God wants you to do, and you still have a question of God's will for your life, just do what you want to do. Because it's going to be within the framework of your desire to please God. If all those things are happening in your life, you're going to want to be pleasing to the Lord. You're not just going to say, hey, I want to go rob a bank today. No, no you know that that would not hurt Christ. You don't want to do that. So it's not rocket science. But God also guides us, lastly here, through godly counsel of people. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, where there is no guidance or counsel, a people fall. But in the abundance of counselors, there is safety. See, all those play into leading us and guiding us into God's, God's will and his purpose for us. And by the way, when it, and it says in abundance of counselors, that's not talking, you just go out and hire a bunch of counselors. and Okay, because there's some people that do that. There's some people that are always seeking counsel. But they're never heeding counsel. So when they come to you and you tell them biblically, well, here's what you need to do. Okay, thank you. And then, hey, how did that ever work out? Well, now I'm going to a therapist. I'm going to another counselor. And wow, so you went from... Biblical counseling to that. Well, no, I also went to this person, and that, that person led me to this person. And wow. Sometimes I want to go, how much money have you spent on this problem? Because I know it's a bundle. <laughs> and there's still not, it's not being resolved. So that's not the idea here. An abundance of counselors, there is safety. The idea is, is that the counselors that there's an abundance of are of a biblical nature or somebody who is... is worth getting counsel from. So God will never tell you, for example, to abandon your mate for another one. I remember I was a youth pastor at the time and I was left with this church without a pastor. First Baptist Church, the pastor left and I was left just trying to help out and brand new to ministry. And there was a kid in the youth group and his parents were having issues and I met with the couple I was single. I had no idea. Marriage, I had nothing. I had no business giving him counsel, but I did the best that I knew how, and I met with him, and i never forget. They were just very bold, and they said, no, you know, we prayed about it, and God wants us to get a divorce. And I said, well, no, he doesn't. Oh, yeah, no, he made it very clear. <laughs> and I mean, they were just, you know, and I think they ended up doing that. You know, it's sad. But it's like, no, God will never tell you to do things that are against his his word. Um, the other thing people do, sometimes you, you call them on maybe a decision they're trying to make or, or whatever, they ask you for counsel, and they well, here, I'm just going to do this. 
Well, no, that's not biblical. Why would you do that? Well, I have peace about it. You ever hear that? I have peace about it. Who cares if you have peace about it? It's wrong. You know, I'm sure a person that goes in the Rite Aid and shopless has peace about it. They don't care. It doesn't make it right. Um, we have to be aware of that. We have to be, be careful of that. Because sometimes the peace that we have could not come, maybe not from God. <laughs> you know, when God guides, the leadership of the Spirit will line up with the Word of God. And those two will produce peace in your hearts. So it's important to, to be reminded about that. So forget the, the fleece and just walk by faith is the bottom line there. Um, and some say that, well, you know what? God honored this, did he not? He did what Gideon asked him to do, but he did it because he was developing Gideon's faith. You know, if you think back in your Christian life, I'm sure you asked the Lord for a lot of crazy things too. He maybe did it, right? But why did he do it? To help your faith, to help you grow in your faith. Because he's compassionate. He did it because he understands our human weakness. In Psalm 78, verse 38 and 39, it says, Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He had every right to destroy them, but he didn't do it. Why? He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all of his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. Psalm 103.14 says, For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. We're but dust. And so while God honored Gideon's fleece, he's not using this as a mandate. Yeah, everybody should go out and put a fleece out on their front lawn. That's not what he's saying. And I think Gideon knew that what he was doing was wrong because he asked God not to be angry with him. Um, We have something that Gideon did not possess, don't we? We have the completed word of God. We have the word of God in our hands. And God expects us to take him at his word. If you remember, um, Jesus condemned those who always had to have a sign. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, he says, But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So when you stop and you you think about Gideon, don't ever think of this fleece event as something positive. Uh, We don't want to use fleeces in our life to discern God's will. We want to go to God's word. We want to be obedient. We want to do what the Lord calls us to do and trust him for the outcome. Uh, I read a story of a traveler. He was coming uh, in the early days of the West. He came to Mississippi and he discovered that there was a uh, 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 there was no way to get across the, the Mississippi River. And it was in the winter time, and there was a big, uh, it was covered with ice. It was cold enough. There were, everything was cu- sheeted over with ice. But the traveler was new to the area, and he, he was afraid to trust himself to the ice. He didn't know how thick it was. So finally, with a lot of caution, he crept 
on his hands and knees. And he's, he's going across the Mississippi on his hands and knees in the dead of winter. And the wind's blowing and he gets halfway over the river. And all of a sudden, he heard somebody singing. He thought, a world? And he turns around, and here's another traveler coming with his four-horse load of coal over the ice, and he's just singing as loud as he could. You know, I mean, when that happens to you, you, you might feel a little foolish, but all of a sudden, wow, I can trust this, right? And see, Gideon... Um, we're, we're, like, we're like that traveler. We're just like Gideon. That's, we're just like that traveler. We're afraid to take a step of faith and obediently serve the Lord because we don't know some things. Um, but you know what? Have you ever stopped to think, what could God accomplish in our lives if every believer would simply just do what God wants them to do? There'd be no more power and glory and all that stuff uh, going on in people's lives, you would see that in the church. You would see that glorifying the Lord. There would be people saved. I mean, that, that would be incredible. So tonight, ask yourself the question, are you faithfully doing what the Lord has called you to do? Or are you holding back? because of a lack of faith to trust him? Are you guilty of looking for signs instead of simply taking God at his word? Um, the key is our desire should be to follow his will because once we are willing to follow his will, we'll never be sorry. Um, but if you fail to do that, <laughs> if you fail to do his will, you will ever be sorry. Sorry.